just before you uh, put away those uh, sheets of paper uh, that we were just singing from, just, um, just take a look at the bottom of the page and you'll see uh, that hymn is based on the 4th century uh, Te Deum. Uh, this is a 1,600-year-old based hymn, uh, based on uh, a very important uh, piece of uh, uh, historic Christian worship um, in the heat of Trinitarian debates. And uh, that fourth verse, Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit, three we name you, while in essence only one undivided God we Claim you and adoring, bend the knee while we sing this mystery. And uh, it's a wonderful hymn. Now, uh, turn, turn with me to your, your outline. Uh, we are going to be... Um, you need to fasten your seatbelts. Uh, the ride is going to be a little bumpy. Uh, we have a lot to cover uh, in an hour, a lot more than what an hour really should contain. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to try and uh, cover this material uh, in the time allotted, the doctrine of the Trinity. And for many, I think uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is a bit like saying uh, Oswald Whistle, the thistle sifter, sifted a sack of thistles. Uh, it's hard to say and uh, probably pointless. Uh, and um, I, I suspect a great many regard the doctrine of the Trinity uh, in that way. I'm always reminded uh, when I think about the doctrine of the Trinity of those uh, famous words of Alice in Wonderland, a book that I read a lot when I was a child. Um, that uh, we should all uh, believe in six impossible things before breakfast. Uh, well, the doctrine of the Trinity, let's, uh, let's begin uh, on page two, and you'll be glad to see that it's not all in small font. Uh, but I do, have, uh, I do have a few allusions here to some important uh, creeds. Uh, there'll be a, a couple present here tonight who will understand why I chose a Polish Catechism to begin with, um, the, the so-called Rakovian Catechism of uh, 1605. Uh, this was a catechism uh, that made its rounds in the 17th century, and uh, uh, the English Parliament uh, in 1616, um, 16, I'm not sure the date, 1685 maybe, um, um, uh, voted to seize and burn uh, copies uh, of the Rakovian catechism that were circulating. Uh, at the time of the writing of the Westminster Confession, 1640s, uh, there were in fact a, a number of uh, Trinitarian issues floating around. Uh, one known as Socinianism and uh, another uh, through the influence of uh, this Rakovian uh, catechism. Uh, prove to me, this is from the Catechism, prove to me that in the case of the essence of God, there is but one person. Uh, this indeed may be seen from hence that, that the essence of God is one, not in kind, but in number, 
Wherefore, it cannot in any way contain a plurality of persons, since a person is nothing else than than individual intelligent essence. Wherever, then, there exist three numerical persons, there must necessarily, in like manner, be reckoned three individual essences. For in the same sense in which it is affirmed that there is one numerical essence, it must be held that there is also one numerical person. Uh, this is Unitarianism. Uh, this is, uh, this is uh, uh, the Rokovian Catechism saying if there is uh, one essence, uh, if, there's one, uh, if there is one uh, uh, essence of God, substance of God, uh, Godness, then there can only be one, uh, there can only be one person. Well, it's against that kind of thinking uh, that uh, the creeds, uh, the, the early church creeds, uh, the Athanasian creed uh, of around 500 uh, AD, and uh, perhaps the more familiar Nicene, or to be more accurate, the Niceno-Constantinopolitan creed uh, of 381. In the back of Trinity, for example, uh, there, is a, there is a copy of the uh, Nicene or the Niceno-Constantinopolitan uh, creed and uh, from uh, time to time in, in certain worship services uh, that creed is sometimes uh, recited. Uh, and these are creeds uh, that define for us in uh, very precise terms the nature of the doctrine uh, of the Trinity. Well, let's get into, the, uh, let's get into the, some of the issues. Uh, first of all, is the doctrine uh, necessary? Um, if, we, if we begin with the Old Testament, if we begin with uh, the fundamental statement of the Old Testament, uh, we probably would go to Deuteronomy 6.4. Uh, this is the Shema of Israel that uh, Orthodox Jews uh, would recite three times a day. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, and similar statements, uh, just pick out a few of these references, Isaiah 45, 5. Uh, I, am, uh, I am the Lord and there is no other beside me, there is no God. Uh, in distinction then from all of the nations around Israel, uh, with, their, with their polytheism, uh, with their multiplicity of gods, uh, in Israel distinguished herself by being uh, insistently monotheistic. Uh, there is only one God, and every other God is an idol. Now, uh, that's, uh, that's one, uh, that's one uh, facet, that's one uh, truth that Scripture teaches. It is absolutely insistent uh, on monotheism. There is only one God. There are not two gods or three gods or four gods. There is only one God. That's, a, that's an absolute uh, insistent uh, within, uh, within the scriptures. But then, in addition to that, uh, scripture posits another truth, that there is more than one who is that one God. Uh, there is more than one who is called God. Uh, so Jesus at uh, at uh, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, um, prescribes baptism in the one name, not in the names in the plural, but in the one name uh, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, In addition to the Father, Jesus is also called 
uh, God. Uh, John 20, 28, uh, Thomas's uh, affirmation, post-resurrection affirmation, my Lord and my God. Uh, the Father is God, uh, the Son uh, is God. And then, not long after Pentecost, Peter recognizes uh, that to lie against the Holy Spirit is to lie against God. Uh, the accusation that is made uh, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. And so you have the benediction of uh, 2 Corinthians 13. The grace of our Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Uh, there is only one God, and yet there is more than one who is called God. The Father is called God, the Son is called God, the Holy Spirit is called God, and yet there is only one God. There are three who are one. There is one who is also three. There is a three-in-oneness truth being asserted in the Scripture. Now, you may say, I don't understand this, but it's not important that you understand it. It's important that you believe it. It's, it's important that you see what Scripture is teaching here. And, te and Scripture is teaching us two, two truths, which seemingly, at least to us, may appear to be a contradiction. But they're not a contradiction. They are held together in uh, the mind uh, and being of God in absolute perfection. Now, this plurality, uh, there, so there is one God, and there is more than oneness in the one God. There is plurality within the oneness. Uh, that's just, uh, that's, those are just facts of the Bible. The Bible teaches there's one God, and the Bible teaches that there is more than one who is that one God. And this plurality is not, um, it's more than a plurality of functions, uh, or, or a plurality of attributes, or a pr plurality of, um, of aspects of God. Uh, there is a sense in the Bible, we're, we're going to look at it, in which the three relate to each other in a way that looks to us like communion, like fellowship. They talk to each other. They communicate uh, with each other. They have discourse with each other. Within the one God, there is communication. And it's not as though God is simply talking to himself. In a sense, he is talking to himself. But in another sense, too, there is differentiation. There is separation. Uh, there, is, uh, there is discernible identity, a, a differentiation of identity within the one God. Now, that raises some questions, and they're not easy questions. Uh, what, is the, what is the relationship of the three to the one, and what is the relationship of the three to each other? What's the relationship of the three to the one, the one God, the one essence, uh, and what is the relationship of the three to each other? How does the Father relate to the Son? How does the Son relate to the Father and to the Holy Spirit, and so on? Now, those two questions are raised not by philosophy. They're raised by uh, Scripture itself. Uh, we, we, haven't, uh, we haven't engaged in any sleight of hand. Uh, we haven't engaged here in any uh, magical hermeneutic in trying to understand the Bible. Uh, we, we're just trying to put two truths that the Bible uh, portrays, the Bible teaches, conveys to us. God reveals himself, discloses himself as one and three, as three in one. 
If Jesus is God, how does he, as God, relate to God the Father? If Jesus is God, how does he, as God, relate to God the Father? Now, one possible answer uh, to that question is that he is a different God, in which case you have two gods. Now, that's the charge uh, that uh, Jews and Muslims, uh, Jews and Muslims uh, regard the doctrine of the Trinity as inherently polytheistic. That's the the charge uh, that uh, Jews and Muslims will make against uh, Christianity. Now, that's one reason why John Stott, for example, as often um, in print and, and other places, played down. He, doesn't deny, he never denied the doctrine of the Trinity, but he did play it down in the interests of uh, trying to witness to Jews and to, uh, and to Islam. Um, we need to ask ourselves then this, uh, this uh, question. Uh, it, how does Jesus as God uh, relate to, um, to, how did I put the question? How does Jesus uh, as God relate to God the Father? One answer is um, that he relates to him as a different God. That would lead to polytheism. Or is Jesus perhaps less than God? God-like, perhaps. Um, God in the sense of a God to us, but not God in the sense of God the Father. So he's a superman, uh, or a super... Uh, a, um, he is, he is uh, uber-man, uh, a, a, a semi-erg, uh, 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 something less than uh, God the Father. Now, if that's true... To, to the extent that Jesus is less than God is the extent to which, A, he has no right to demand worship of us, and B, we have no right to offer him worship. That's, uh, th- that, by the way, was the point that made by Athanasius in the great uh, Christological debates uh, of the early church. It's because Jesus is God that he demands to be worshipped. It is the right thing. It's the appropriate thing. When people fell down and worshipped him in the pages of the Gospels, Jesus never says, no, that's, that's inappropriate. That's inappropriate. Uh, he, he saw it as something that was essentially appropriate because he was indeed God. Now, is the doctrine of the Trinity taught in the Old Testament? Uh, we've already alluded to uh, Deuteronomy 6.4 and uh, the Shema, it was, uh, it was the great distinctive uh, of uh, Judaism uh, that they were insistently monotheistic uh, regarding all the gods around uh, um, the, the claims to deity by the nations that surrounded them uh, as uh, so much idolatry. They were exclusive monotheists. The Bible begins with creation. Uh, the God of Israel is the only God there is. He's not simply the God. He's not simply the God of Israel. You know, Yahweh Jehovah is the God of Israel, and, and Moloch is the God of some other nation, and, and so on. And no, when when the Bible tells the story, it begins with this one God as the Creator of the heavens and the earth, as the only God. There is. That's how the story of the Bible begins. So that when we, when we read uh, Genesis chapter 1, as we were thinking uh, on Sunday morning in Dr. Ferguson's exposition of uh, the prologue of John's Gospel, uh, the one who created the heavens and the earth is Jesus 
of Nazareth, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is that one God. Now, he's not the only one who is that one God, but Jesus is that one God. Uh, We're familiar with uh, Augustine's uh, famous uh, statement about uh, the new is latent in the old and the old is patent uh, in the new. It's sometimes uh, misunderstood, uh, partly I think because uh, latent and patent, as Augustine was using the term, he would have been using it in Latin, means something a little different from what is uh, customarily thought by, by that statement. What is hidden in the old is open or revealed in, uh, in the new. Uh, another one of Augustine's uh, ways of describing uh, the old in relationship to the new is that the old The Old Testament is like a room full of furniture, but the lights are out. And what happens in the pages of the New Testament with the coming of uh, Jesus, uh, the incarnation of Jesus in the Christmas story is that suddenly someone has brought some candles into the room, has brought light into the room, and all the furniture is there. It had been there all along, except that you couldn't see it, perhaps only seen vague shapes uh, of that furniture. Uh, the predominant name for God in the Old Testament, uh, the name Elohim, uh, in our English Bibles, Lord, but in lower case. Um, it's the predominant name for God in the Old Testament. Uh, the Im uh, in Hebrew, you just have to take my word for it, but the Im in Hebrew is the plural form. Uh, El being the, being the generic name for God in Hebrew, Elohim is the plural form. Uh, it would be, it's a bit like saying, my name is Derek's. Uh, God's name is Elohim. Now, uh, how useful, you might say, how convenient indeed, that God should give himself a name that is actually in the plural form. Even though he is only, there is only one God, it is already suggestive, it is consonant with the fact that there is more than one who is that God, that one God. Uh, Elohim. Or Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. Uh, Now there are some uh, uh, theologians, uh, Meredith Klein uh, for example regards the us there as a reference to angels. Uh, So God is conferring with the angels, let us make man uh, in our image. Uh, that's a rather weird and strange interpretation. Uh, I think a, a more natural interpretation is uh, to see that as, as God communicating within himself. Uh, it is perfectly consonant, therefore, if there is more than one who is the one God, uh, that, uh, that, that that kind of conversation, that kind of communication can take place within the Godhead. God is conferring. The Father is communicating with the Son. The Son is communicating with Uh, the Father. Uh, Similar reference uh, at the end of the famous Isaiah 6 passage, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, who shall I send and who will go for us? Uh, There it is again uh, in the plural. Uh, We're not going to look at all of these passages, but uh, the angel of the Lord uh, phenomenon that you see, especially in the patriarchal uh, narratives, uh, the so-called Malak Yahweh, uh, the angel of the Lord. And sometimes, uh, as you read the narrative, the angel of the Lord 
is God himself. He is the angel of the Lord. And, and sometimes the angel of the Lord uh, is, uh, appears to be someone other than, uh, than uh, God. Sometimes speaking of God in the third person, if you like. Uh, as in Genesis 16:11, the angel of the Lord uh, appears to Hagar, says to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Uh, it seems uh, the, the Lord is in the third person, as though he's speaking about someone else. But then in other passages, the angel of the Lord is the Lord uh, himself. Uh, and I've given you some uh, references there. Uh, that you can uh, chase after. That phenomenon then of the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord as a theophany. We looked at this right at the very beginning of this semester when we were talking about the self-disclosure, the revelation uh, of God. Uh, uh, we, we, we looked at those passages. Uh, an underlining, uh, another, another feature now, B.B. Uh, Warfield says, an underlining uh, underlying suggestion of a threefold causality. Uh, look at uh, Psalm 33 6. Uh, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. You have the Lord, you have the word, and you have breath. Uh, and uh, Warfield sees in that uh, an underlying suggestion of a threefold cause. Uh, and the parenthetical statement is mine uh, when I say maybe. I'm, I'm not absolutely convinced about, about the exegesis of that. But, but uh, certainly there are these uh, hints of, uh, of threefold causality uh, in the Old Testament. Um, personal hypostases within God uh, in the Old Testament, uh, within uh, the essence of God, that there is, a, there is a plurality, if you like, within the essence of God. So Proverbs 8 is, is often uh, uh, suggested when wisdom is personified. Wisdom takes on, as it were, a personification, uh, as, as though it's more than just some generic wisdom uh, that's in view, but, but, but a person who is wise. Uh, again, I'm not absolutely persuaded uh, by that, and uh, uh, we, we find in the New Testament uh, Christ as the wisdom of God for sure, but we also speak of Christ as the power of God, and we don't, we don't in that case make power uh, to be a, a personification uh, in any sense. But, but th uh, that's another avenue of the Old Testament uh, for the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, the promises of a divine of a divine Messiah, not just the promises of, of a Messiah, but that the Messiah who will come will be divine. Uh, and uh, Psalm 110, uh, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There is the Lord uh, who is communicating with another who is also Lord, who is given total sovereignty, to whom total sovereignty in the universe uh, belongs. Uh, there's, a, there's an idea here, there's a suggestion here, uh, that uh, there is, a, a, um, there is a, a, a divinity, a deity that belongs, a divineness, if you, if you like, that belongs to Messiah himself. A similar suggestion in uh, Daniel uh, chapter 7 and, and several uh, other uh, passage, passages. Now, top of page 6. Uh, here's my caveat in all of that. Um, 
we need to be very careful how we, how we utilize that information. Uh, you know, there, no Jew, and, and I, don't mean, I don't mean an unbelieving Jew, I mean, I mean a believing Jew. I mean somebody like, like Moses or somebody like David or somebody like Isaiah or Ezekiel. Uh, or Daniel, or, or one of the minor prophets. No Jew in the Old Testament with simply the Old Testament before him ever, 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 ever suggested that there is plurality within God. Right? The information is all there. And, and, and we, look, we look at Genesis and we see uh, God gives his, uh, his name. The first name that God gives, Elohim, it's in the plural. Well, well, how convenient, because there is plurality within the one God. But uh, whilst that may be obvious to us, it is, only, it is only obvious to us, I would suggest, after Luke 24, after the hermeneutic that Jesus provides in, in saying to us, we go back now into the Old Testament carrying the candles that Augustine talks about, and, and now we see, as it were, with a, with a veil taken away, truths that even godly, godly, godly Jews did not see with only the Old Testament before them. Uh, so I think that should put a little, a little break on, on what we see in the Old Testament and the extent to which we see it. We see things in the Old Testament because we are now interpreting it in the light of, with the, with the governing uh, hermeneutic of uh, the New Testament scriptures, and, and that's, that's very important. Uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is not self-evident in itself in the Old Testament, uh, but the doctrine of the Trinity is taught in the Old Testament if you have New Testament eyes to see it. Uh, let's, uh, let's move on to the Trinity in the New Testament. If you've got a King James Version, uh, all you need is First uh, John five seven, and and it's and you're home and dry, uh, and it's a home run. Uh, for there is for there are three that bear record in heaven: the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one, and uh, that's it. It's perfect. It's clear. Except there's a there's a huge uh, textual issue with this text. Uh, it's probably you know if you've got the ESV, that text isn't there uh, after the comma. Uh, after heaven, the rest of it isn't there. It might be in a footnote somewhere, uh, because there is uh, there's a great deal of uh, of uh, mistrust as to the origin of this particular text. It's not in uh, the more important uh, manuscripts, uh, for sure. And it looks as though it looks as though someone later, in order to bolster the doctrine of the Trinity, inserted this little addition. Uh, to make it absolutely clear that the New Testament is teaching the doctrine of the, of the Trinity, uh, the so-called Johannine comma. Um, uh, moving on, the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, I love this statement by Warfield, the doctrine of the Trinity does not appear in the New Testament in the making, but as already made. Uh, that's, a, that's a wonderful observation. You know, you find a lot of times in the New Testament uh, writers spending a great deal of time uh, trying to prove something. Uh, Paul, for example, takes four chapters in Romans. It must have taken Dr. Ferguson, how long did it take you to preach the first four chapters of Romans? I mean, six months or more. 
uh, you know, it's a, it, four chapters to prove the universality of sin. The Jews and Gentiles are sinners. But there's, there, is no, there is nothing like that in the New Testament for the doctrine of the Trinity. There is nothing like that for the deity of uh, Christ. Or the deity, or, or perhaps even more problematic, the deity of the Holy Spirit. It is simply asserted. So that by the time Paul is writing, by the time Peter is writing, by the time John is writing, this was already accepted in the church. It, it was already doctrine that was accepted. Now that in itself is quite remarkable since um, the New Testament writers and the early New Testament believers are Jews. Jews who would have held stubbornly to monotheism. Who had read the Old Testament from beginning to end as insisting on strict monotheism. And all of a sudden, now... They are saying the Father is God, and Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is uh, God. That's, that's a staggering feature of the New Testament, uh, and a testimony to the power of the witness that Jesus uh, gave uh, to these d- early disciples. Uh, it was beyond dispute. It was, it was, uh, it was uh, part of accepted uh, doctrine uh, among New Testament uh, believers. Uh, Thirdly, the New Testament doesn't contain any of the technical uh, terms we now associate with the doctrine of three in oneness. Uh, uh, Terms like trinity and person and uh, hypostasis or or substance, essence, nature. Uh, These are are some of the words uh, that we commonly employ when we're trying to describe the doctrine of the trinity. They're the words used, for example, in the creeds, uh, but they're not New Testament uh, words. Uh, The doctrine of the Trinity appears in the New Testament. The doctrine of the Trinity appears in the New Testament, in particular, in the way the New Testament explains and elaborates the experience of salvation. Uh, You see it very graphically in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 says a great deal about the Father, and then it says a great deal about the Son, and then it says a great deal about the Holy Spirit. Uh, The Father who predestines, the Son who redeems, the Spirit who seals uh, as as part of what Ephesians 1 is all about. In the application of redemption, right, in the accomplishment and application of redemption, these three, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, are all employed in, in bringing salvation and making it effective uh, within the individual. That's, that's the way, the predominant way in which the New Testament goes about describing uh, the existence and work uh, of uh, the Trinity. Now, the New Testament doctrine of the Trinity merges in particular... Uh, as a consequence of the deity of Jesus. That's, that's, that's the most important feature of the New Testament. The fact is that the New Testament is insistent that Jesus is God. And because there is only one God, and Jesus, Jesus also addresses his Father, who is also God, and there is only one God, that information alone forces the New Testament into Uh, a plurality within the one uh, God. Now, 
Um, the deity of Christ. Um, there's information here that belongs here in the doctrine of the Trinity. There's information here that also belongs if we were doing a course on uh, Christology, if we were looking at the person and work of Christ, and we, we will be doing that before we finish sometime in the future. Uh, so we'll, we will, we will uh, traverse this little road again. Uh, but I, I want to give you some of the evidence, and I've given you a, a lot of evidence here, uh, on the insistence, the absolute insistence in the New Testament on the deity of Christ. First of all, in terms of divine titles that Jesus has. Uh, theos, uh, the Greek word for God. Uh, we were looking on Sunday morning. Uh, Dr. Ferguson was looking at the prologue. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, I've given you a little note there. If your Jehovah's Witness knocks on the door, uh, have this uh, folder handy, because uh, he'll have his folder handy, uh, and uh, you, can, you can explain to him why uh, there is what's called the, uh, the predicate before the verb, and therefore lacks the article. Not that Jesus was a God or God-like, but that he was God, uh, the only God there is. And there's a perfectly reasonable uh, Greek grammar explanation for why John does it the way that he does. Because if he did it the way that, that, that uh, Jehovah Witness, Witnesses sometimes suggest that he should have done it, uh, you, you'd have ended up uh, with John saying that the Father is the Logos, which is what John is not saying, or that the Logos, is in, in, uh, that the Logos includes the entirety of the Godhead, which is not what John uh, is saying either, because there is God with God, and yet there is only one God. Right? There is, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Um, God with God, uh, almost side by side with God. Actually, it, it, it is more likely to be a preposition of movement, suggesting God uh, moving towards God, and yet there is only one God. And your mind is uh, stretching. You can't, uh, you, you can't take that in. And yet, you know, you'd, you would only need to study Greek for, I don't know, 30 minutes, an hour, uh, just, basic, uh, just basic Greek 101 uh, vocabulary of uh, 20 words, a little bit of, uh, little bit of uh, basic grammar, tenses. Uh, and you could, uh, you could translate uh, John 1-1 in Greek in, in, in a hurry. Uh, it's very simple. It's very basic. The language, the words are very small. And yet, yet as uh, Augustine would say, uh, as he wrote about uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, I, I, see, uh, I see the depths. Uh, but I cannot see uh, the bottom. Uh, there, is in, uh, there is in John's prologue, uh, it's, it's a place where children can paddle and a place where elephants can swim. Um, John 1.1, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Very strong statement that Jesus is God. God who is at the Father's side. The Father is God, and yet there is God at the Father's side. And yet there are not two gods. There's only one uh, God, but a strong statement on the deity of Jesus. Uh, Thomas's words in John 20, 28, my Lord uh, and my God. Uh, Romans 9, 5, 
Uh, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Uh, you need to check your, your version uh, as to the punctuation, and sometimes uh, a period is uh, introduced into the punctuation uh, after, uh, after the word Christ. So, according to the flesh is the Christ, period, new sentence, God, who is over all, be blessed forever. And then the God would be a reference not to Christ, but to the Father. Uh, uh, but uh, the ESV, uh, I think correctly here, punctuates it in this way with a comma after Christ, suggesting that the God uh, in, the next, uh, in the next clause is actually referring to Christ. Christ, who is God over all, blessed um, forever. And then if you turn, uh, turn the page, uh, not only uh, theos, um, but perhaps more especially uh, kurios. Uh, kurios is the Greek word uh, that was used in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to translate the divine name uh, Yahweh or, or Jehovah, the Tetragrammaton, the name that God gives in Exodus chapter 3, the, the covenant name uh, of, uh, of God. And it's, uh, it's quite, uh, it's quite uh, breathtaking. Uh, there's a great deal of uh, criticism in, uh, in liberal uh, Christology about, about all of this, but the New Testament is, uh, is abundantly, uh, abundantly clear uh, here. Uh, that, uh, that the New Testament uh, does, in fact, use the term kurios, uh, l- Lord, the, 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 the name, uh, the divine name, the, the, the name that uh, Greek speakers especially, uh, Jewish Greek speakers would read their, their Old Testament, not in Hebrew, but in Greek, in, the, in a Greek translation. Uh, and kurios was the translation for the divine name Jehovah. Uh, so when, uh, when, they, when they read that Jesus is Jehovah, uh, Jesus is Kurios, what, what, what they're hearing is Jesus is Yahweh, Jesus is uh, Jehovah. Uh, just let me pick a couple of them, uh, James uh, 1, 2 and 2, 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, my brothers, show no partiality uh, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord, kurios, of glory. The Lord of glory. Now, now just bear in mind that James is, is Jesus' brother. Half-brother if you want to be technical about it, but he's, but he's Jesus' brother. He was raised in the same house as Jesus. Pr- probably slept in the same room as Jesus. Ate at the same table with Jesus. Played outside as a little boy with, with Jesus. Uh, I have an older brother. I, I, I love him. I respect him. I, I'm somewhat in fear of him. He, he's ex-military. 25 years in the army. He's, he's military and then some. Uh, has, has that disposition, that military kind of disposition. Never occurred to me to call him Lord. <laughs> and certainly not, not Yahweh or Jehovah. Uh, he's, he's many things to me, but he's not, he's not Yahweh or Jehovah. The fact that James would call his own brother Yahweh, Kurios, is, is breathtaking. If you, if you put me up against the wall and said, why do I believe that Jesus is God? That would be one of the reasons. His own brother believed him to be God. You know, your brothers know, you know, my older brother knows more about 
me than I would want you to know. I mean, seriously. He, he knew what I did when I was a young boy. He knew what I did when I was a teenager. We did things together. He could tell some stories, and some of them, some of them would be embarrassing stories, to be honest about it. I wasn't a Christian. Um, the fact that James calls Jesus kurios, Yahweh, for, for a, a, a Greek-speaking Jew, uh, is breathtaking. It takes my breath away every time I think about it. And then the confession of the early church. It becomes a confession. It becomes a little creed uh, that early Christians would say, Jesus is uh, Lord. No one can say, Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 3 and something similar in Romans 10, 9. Um, now, what does uh, kurios signify? And it signifies uh, uh, many things, uh, um, n- not, not least, not least uh, uh, an, uh, uh, a consideration of how they would view the, the name kurios with Yahweh in the Old Testament. And that's basically what I'm getting at uh, in page 9. Drop down to the very bottom of page 9. Uh, number 6, uh, Philippians 2.10. What, what I'm doing here is um, uh, th- there, are, there are three passages. Uh, Mark 1.2 is a reference to Malachi 3.1. Uh, it's, 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 using, it's speaking of Jesus as Lord, where in the Old Testament reference, the name is Yahweh. The name is, is Jehovah. Uh, So you have Mark doing it in chapter 1, referring to a passage in Malachi 3. You have Peter doing it in his Pentecost sermon, referring to a passage in Joel 2. And then in Philippians 2.10, the same thing is happening. It's it's referring to a passage in Isaiah 45. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess. Now, at the name of Jesus, Jesus isn't the name here. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the name. That he is kurios. Jesus is kurios. There's coming a day uh, in this, uh, in this uh, so-called common Christi, the song of Christ in Philippians 2, there is coming a day where every knee will confess whether they believe it and, and worship or whether they, whether, they, whether they now believe it and gnash their teeth in hell. They will confess Jesus is Yahweh. He is kurios uh, to the glory uh, of God uh, the Father. Well, a lot of other uh, information, the I am sayings, uh, whatever you make of the I am sayings, I, I personally think that uh, John is picking up language from Exodus 3. Uh, Yahweh in Exodus 3 when God reveals his divine name uh, it sounds like the verb to be uh, I am that I am and then it gets shortened to I am and I think Jesus is making a very deliberate reference to the I am uh, in Exodus 3. Others are not so convinced. I've given you a little quotation there from Herman Ridderboss. Then similar information uh, about the son uh, of God uh, and then son of man. We don't have time to look at all of that. All of that uh, information is uh, proving the deity of Jesus. And it's the deity of Jesus uh, that raises the issue of the Trinity. If, if, if the Father is God and Jesus is God, then, then you've already got a problem here. Uh, that there is more than one 
to whom you may attribute the term God, and yet there is only one God. A uh, s- similar issue then is raised with the deity of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and and uh, uh, lots of reasons here why we think of the Holy Spirit uh, in terms of uh, a person, a divine person within, uh, within the Godhead. Uh, so the baptism of, of Jesus, uh, the, the key issue is the distinctiveness of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son uh, and uh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, uh, the extent uh, of uh, the, the uh, penalty, the punishment of Ananias and Sapphira because they, they lied to the Holy Spirit uh, and they die as a consequence. Uh, the, com- the commissioning of Saul and Barnabas in Acts 13 and the role of the Holy Spirit. L- lots, of, lots of reasons why the New Testament uh, says that the Holy Spirit too is, uh, is, is divine. Uh, and to be distinguished from the Father and from uh, the Son. Now, page 13. Uh, f- fasten your seatbelt a little tighter. Uh, let's think a little bit about some... Some, uh, some heretical uh, ways of, of uh, bringing this material together. Uh, one, uh, one way of bringing this material together is known as adoptionism. Uh, and, the, and, these, and there have been adoptionists uh, in the past and there are adoptionists in the present. Uh, that Jesus was a man upon whom the Spirit came. Uh, that he is not God in the sense that he has always been God, that, he is, that before the creation of the world he was, there was God and Jesus was God. Uh, that, uh, that God the Father uh, adopts this person. And in, in, now, he's an extraordinary person, to be sure, but he's something less than God. And there are various forms of adoptionism, um, but all of them end up with a view of Jesus that's less than true God. Uh, Patripassionism um, emerges uh, around about the year 200, a man by the name of Praxius, uh, with whom a great deal of correspondence took place um, and controversy with, uh, with Tertullian, uh, out of which the doctrine of the Trinity uh, emerges. Patripassionism says that it was the Father who suffered uh, on the cross. Uh, so it, it uh, submerges Jesus and it submerges the Holy Spirit. And the one, the one predominant person here is the Father. So that the Father becomes everything. Uh, Patripassionism. Uh, Sabellianism is a third one. Uh, sometimes known as modalistic monarchianism. Uh, from a, a person by the name of Sibelius, early 3rd century. Uh, sometimes this is... Uh, known simply as modalism, or, or perhaps, uh, I love the way Michael Reeves in a new book calls this modalism. When I first saw it, I thought it was a misprint. Uh, uh, modalism, uh, different moods. Uh, there's something of that in Karl Barth. I, 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 I've said some negative things about Karl Barth already in this course, and, and certainly here I think I would be fairly negative about uh, Karl Barth. Uh, Karl Barth distrusted uh, traditional creedal use of, uh, of uh, terms like uh, person and substance and essence and so on. And I think Karl Barth sometimes ends up in the modalist or modalist uh, view of the Trinity. It's a bit like Peter Sellers 
uh, sometimes called the Peter Sellers view of the Trinity. Peter Sellers, you know, is the actor, the British actor who played uh, Inspector Clouseau uh, in The Pink Panther. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, he, he would come on, he would come on uh, sometimes as, as different parts. Same actor, one actor, one person uh, with different roles. Uh, so the, the Peter Sellers view of the Trinity is that there's, there's, one, there's one person here, uh, but, he, but sometimes he appears as father and sometimes he appears as son and sometimes he appears as Holy Spirit, but never three at the same time. Uh, that, that's the sort of modalism, modalism uh, view of the Trinity. Uh, Arianism, we look at Arianism when we look at uh, Christology. Uh, Arius, uh, whether he said this or not, but Athanasius certainly, certainly uh, claimed he said this, uh, there was a time when the sun was not. In other words, uh, great as, as Christ is, uh, at the end of the day, he is a created being. Uh, he is above uh, Michael and Gabriel and the archangels, uh, but at the end of the day, he is a created being, uh, Arianism. Uh, or, or my favorite, I think, pneumotomachianism. I tried throwing that into a, an email this week. Uh, pneumotomachianism, uh, uh, two words, uh, pneuma, spirit, and the Greek word uh, to kill or to slay. Uh, these are the spirit slayers. Uh, These uh, these were folks who upheld the deity of the Father and the deity of the Son, but would not uphold the deity of the Spirit, uh, a a heresy condemned at the Council of uh, Constantinople. Now, so that we're clear here what the doctrine of the Trinity means, let's uh, let's think about some statements. Uh, The three, there are three and there is one. There is oneness. And there is threeness. The three are one in essence, not in person. Uh, the three persons are one by unity of essence. There are three, but in terms of their essence, they are one. Uh, I think when we, uh, you know, when we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, we explore what Scripture teaches about the Trinity. What we what we see is that God cannot be other than triune. It's the way He is. God exists trinitarianly. He always has, and He always will. Um, when you look at the nature of redemption, or for that matter, the nature of creation, the creation of the world can only be because God is triune. The way redemption, the way the gospel uh, is explained in the pages of the scripture, the gospel that we see in scripture is a gospel that could only be, it could only work, it could only have the contours and shape that it does because God is triune. If God wasn't triune, the, the shape of the gospel would have to be different. God is necessarily triune, just as the way of the gospel is necessarily the way that it is. If Scripture teaches that God is triune, we must worship Him in a triune fashion. In our praying, in our speaking of Him. Uh, That's why why for centuries... uh, Gathered corporate worship has always begun with a hymn uh, expressing the triune nature of God. 
that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, that's why we began uh, singing the, the hymn based on the Te Deum uh, at the beginning of our uh, lecture uh, this evening. So there is one God, there is one essence, there is one substance, whatever you want to call it. Um, but there is also threeness. And, 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 and those three appear to have properties that we think of in terms of what we think of when we say person. They're not three attributes. They're not three phases. They are three who communicate with each other. There are three personal subsistences or hypostases within God. We're just throwing out terms here. Uh, if, you're, if, you're in, uh, if you're in the early church and you happen to be in the West, you'd be speaking Latin, so you'd use uh, a Latin term, and the, and the term that came up was a term uh, proposed by Tertullian, person. Uh, if you were in the East, uh, you, you would be speaking Greek uh, and probably didn't know Latin, just as those in the West who were speaking Latin didn't speak Greek. Augustine, I don't think, spoke any Greek at all. I'm not even sure that Augustine knew any Greek. Uh, but his, his, his total language is Latin. So you've got, uh, you've got two sides of the church, and uh, one is using the term person, and the other side of the church is using hypostasis. There's a whole story in that in and of itself, because the Latin folk uh, couldn't translate the Greek uh, correctly, and uh, were accusing each other of, of uh, heresy left and right because, uh, because of a, a lost-in-translation uh, issue. Um, what does person mean? What, when we say person... What do we mean when we say person? And let me, suggest, let me suggest four things when we use the term person. First, we use it to, to underline distinction. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son or the Father. They are distinct. They are essentially distinct. That's what we mean when we say person. There is distinction within the oneness. There is distinction. One is not the other. Secondly, agency. Each distinction is an agent. We, we, can, we can say, he did it, meaning the father did it. He did it, meaning the son did it. He did it, meaning the Holy Spirit did it. There is agency. There is distinction. There is agency. Thirdly, there's relationship. Oh, under agency, I've, I've, got, to, I've got to get in here somewhere. Um, that, that although there is agency, there is nothing that God does. Um, all the work that God does outside of himself involves all three persons. So you have this little formula, uh, opera ad extra trinitatis indivisa sunt. It's, it's a wonderful little phrase. Uh, it's a very important phrase. Uh, the external operations, the external works of the Trinity cannot be divided. Uh, opera ad extra trinitatis indivisa sunt. That will be on the exam. Uh, so just make a note. 
that, uh, that's, that's, that's a guaranteed question in the exam. Uh, distinction, agency, relationship. Uh, they don't relate as ideas or, or like chemicals uh, uh, relate to each other. Uh, they have a specific kind uh, of relationship that from a human point of view is best thought of as the kind of relationship that individual persons have with each other. Um, if you were in the Eastern Church, you'd have called it perichoresis. If you were in the Western Church, you'd have called it circumincessio. One is Greek, one is Latin. The dance of the Trinity. You know, the question that Augustine was asked, what was God doing before he created the world? Making hell for people who ask questions <laughs> like that. God is in love And he's in love within himself. The father loves the son. The son loves the father. They were gazing into each other's eyes. They were communicating with each other. Uh, They were were discussing together the mysteries uh, of of what it would mean to create uh, a universe uh, like like the one that we know. Uh, There is communication. Uh, and, and, and all we are doing is pulling the curtains back and just trying to glimpse something that is, that is unglimpsable, uh, that is essentially incomprehensible. The fourth property, uh, the fourth thing we mean by person, is that each has a unique incommunicable property. Uh, each appropriates to himself a, a unique um, incommunicable property. The Son we speak of as begotten. The Father we speak of as unbegotten. The Spirit we speak of as proceeding. The Father is unbegotten. The Son is begotten. The Spirit proceeds. Now don't ask me to explain what any of that means, uh, except that you are necessarily forced, I think, into those areas. And the creeds are defining the, the boundaries, the borders um, here. Uh, are there practical considerations for the doctrine of the Trinity? Yes, a, a whole lot. Think of, uh, think of communion. Think of fellowship. God exists in fellowship. God has always existed in fellowship. God has always been communicating within himself. The Father to the Son, the Son to the Father, the Spirit to the Father and the Son. There's always been communion. There's always been love. So when God says, let us make man in our image, what kind of, what kind of human being, what kind of creature does he create? He creates somebody who's, who's in communion, who needs fellowship, who needs love, and is capable of giving love. So that the love that you have for your newborn grandchild or the love that you have for your wife or your spouse or for your children is just a little spark of that great fire that kindles within God himself. That's all it is. It's just a little spark of the flame that engulfs the Godhead himself. That's why, that's why God says it is not good for man to be alone. Because in that way he doesn't reflect in, in, in some capacity that doesn't, re- doesn't reflect fully uh, God as he is uh, within himself. You see the importance, uh, uh, the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity.
Um, I've got some books here. Uh, if you want to chase it up a little further, I would add to that list. Uh, I, I slapped myself on the wrist as soon as I let this thing go to be printed. Uh, John Owen's uh, marvelous book, Communion Within the Triune God. If you need somebody to tell you, is that book good? Just ask Dr. Ferguson about that book. Uh, but uh, they are essentially uh, several hundred sermons on uh, communion with the Father and communion with the Son and communion with uh, the Holy Spirit. And uh, we need to be intentional, you and I, if we are Trinitarian, and we are. You know, the Athanasian Creed said you can't be saved if you don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, on page one of your handout, you can read it later. Uh, you can't be saved if you don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. That's what the Athanasian Creed says. Um, that, means, uh, that means we have to, you know, when we pray, we, we pray to the Father and through the Son and by the help of the Holy Spirit. We are intentionally Trinitarian. Well, my, my time is gone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we come uh, into your presence. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the wonderful gift of yourself in redeeming us, in being our substitute and sin-bearer. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for without your work we would be dead in trespasses and in sins. Our hearts would still be old hearts, dead hearts. We thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we, as we gaze from afar and listen in to the conversation that you have within yourself. The Father speaking to the Son, and the Spirit speaking to the Father and the Son, and, and we eavesdrop in our mind's eye that glorious communion that you have within yourself, and that you share that communion and fellowship with us as your redeemed people. So bless us as we, as we think through some of these things. Our, our minds ache as we think of the doctrine of the Trinity. We, we, we can see uh, the depths, but we cannot see the bottom. Uh, we will spend the rest of our lives thinking about these things. So hear us, bless us. Uh, we ask it all for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, amen.